murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. All right, on this true law stories, we're going to talk horror stories. We're going to talk business divorce horror stories. We're going to talk about charred bodies and soda can trucks and lumber trucks. We're going to talk about a business owner that got the S out of taken from him by his nephew. The real horrible consequences of 50-50 deadlock with business partners, how one business partner stole everything from her partner, the myth of a tough lawsuit and how that doesn't even work anymore, How the mystery $95,000 law bill and why Yasser here re- re- almost refused that case. Yasser, Baloo, say hi. Hello. And we're going to talk about all of this and things you should ask an attorney before hiring him. And the number one question you should ask any business attorney before hiring them, all this on True Law Stories. But before we get started, don't forget this is brought to you by videocasestory.com, one of the best ways to grow your business, get more ideal clients, charge more, and close more referrals is through Video Case Stories. Go to videocasestory.com to learn how we can help you collect, craft, and deliver those. All right, let's get started. We're going to talk about all these crazy things, and we're talking business divorce. I think it's one of those things that people don't think about, but I think can be crazier than real divorces. I've seen them firsthand, not my personally, but I had friends in them. But before we get started, let's tell, let me, tell me a little bit about your law firm, what you do at International Law. Sure, I appreciate that. So International Law Partners has been in existence for about eight years. Before that, I was with another law firm in Miami. And honestly, the reason I started this is because I was helping more and more small businesses, and I wanted to continue doing that. At another firm, I wasn't able to do that as much. And I also want to, I like helping businesses at the front end before they get into trouble. Part of the, what I kept facing was businesses coming to me after they've already been in trouble. And now the cost is so much more significant to help them out because litigation is expensive. So a lot of what international law partners we do is both sides of it, business transactions to help set up businesses, to help set up partnership agreements, investments. But then on the back end, if they do need litigation help, then we do a lot of litigation. Yeah. And litigation is crazy. It takes a long time. And obviously people should be preventing that ahead of time. Now, you've got a lot of business owners, a lot of budding entrepreneurs in there. What would you say are your top two or three things that a business owner should be doing to prevent the litigation on the back end? Number one thing I tell everyone is uh, understand that your biggest liability comes from your employees, not anyone else. So if you have employees, even if it's a single employee, make sure everything is documented properly, make sure they understand the rules, make sure you're documenting how you pay them, how they work, all of those things. It really can't be understated how significant that is. The second thing is make sure everything is in writing. I know it sounds stupid, but... A lot of people go by business still with a handshake. And honestly, those days are long gone. You can't just do business on a handshake, whether you're doing it with a vendor or internally with a partner, make sure things are in writing. It's not so that, think about it this way. Even if you 100% trust the person you're dealing with, that person is a single person who can get hit by a bus tomorrow. And then now who's your agreement with? It's with a company and you don't have anything in writing with that company. So it really is vital to have everything in writing as much as possible. Even if it's an email confirmation, have it in writing. Uh, It's simple as that, right? (laughs) Yeah, it really is. 
And do people need big, complex contracts for every step of the way? So what I'll say is no. If you're doing a small transaction, if it's a one-off, don't worry about it. Put it in an email, confirm terms, you're good. If it's something lengthier, something more recurring, maybe a couple page, four page agreement, fine. But if you're planning on a long-term sort of contract or long-term relationship, business partners, for example, you really need to dot your I's, cross your T's. And most people come to me and say, oh my God, $2,000, $3,000 for that contract. That's a lot of money. And then I'm looking at them and I'm like, do you know what a litigation, what litigation on this issue alone would cost you? (laughs) It's not even close. It's 10 times, 20 times that. So it really is worth the investment. Yeah, for sure. And can you give me an example of that litigation where a contract would have prevented 40, 50, $100,000 in litigation? Yeah, we, we see it all the time. I had a transaction where a nephew was approached by his uncle. His uncle had an all cash business, a retail business. The uncle was going out of the country, had $50,000 saved up in cash and gave it to the nephew who he trusted brother, son, no problem, and says, hey, hold on to this for six months. I'll come back and I'll get it from you. Leaves the country, comes back in six months and uh, goes back to the nephew. And nephew says, what money? Oh my God. <laughs> and I, like literally what money? The uncle came to me. I said, okay, do you have a text? Do you have anything? Do you have even a text that says, hey, thanks really, thanks a lot for holding on to that cash for me? Anything, anything. No, he's my nephew. I trusted him completely. <laughs> I said, what if he died tomorrow? Where would you go for that money? And he said, yeah, you know what? I didn't think about that. <laughs> and he was shit out of luck. Honestly, I don't know. Can I curse? Uh, yeah, you can. You just did. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, all right. he was shit out of luck. It, it, there was nothing I could do for him. I, it was not just an oral contract to hold money. It was, it, he had nothing. No, no proof that he ever had that 50000 God, that that's just, it's horrible. And a quick call to you. And that's one thing I want to say to everyone listening to this is, as always, this is not legal advice. You should call an attorney, but a quick call to you might be a few hundred dollars, but can save $50,000, can it? Absolutely. 100% correct. Uh, and there's just no reason for not for doing that. Like people just don't think it through and say, okay, what if this, what's the worst case scenario? I I don't know why people don't think that. Yeah, no. And that's what we're here to do is just give them the worst case scenario. But before we get, uh, get into some of the more worst case scenarios and best case scenarios with business, ILP.law is your business. And what's the best way to get in touch with you? Our phone number and my email address. So our phone number is 954-374-7722. And my email is Y-B-I-L-L-O-O at ILP.law. Awesome. Yeah. If you're even thinking about getting into business, especially here in South Florida, no offense to South Florida, but there there's some characters down there. (laughs) (laughs) You should definitely be contacting an attorney. It'll save you thousands of dollars, tons of money, tons of time, because it's just I tell this to people when they're starting business, it's not a matter of if you're going to get into legal trouble. It's a matter of when, if you own a business, isn't it? hundred percent correct. I, I don't know very many small business people who haven't gone through a lawsuit, haven't gone through depositions. That's a rarity now. When I first started practicing almost 20 years ago, it was rare to know people who had gone through the lawsuits, but now it's very common. 
It's very common. And so tell me some more stories because obviously business divorce is, let's, let's just talk, what is business divorce? Just a regular divorce with a between a married couple. You, when you enter into a partnership, you think you should think of it as a marriage and actually colder, right? You have the love component of it in a marriage, but with a spouse, but in a business, you should think of it as a business transaction. You should think what are the strengths and weaknesses going in? What are the right, rights and responsibilities going in and document all of that and put it down on paper so that if it doesn't work out a year from now or even 10 years from now, you can always refer back to the agreement and go from there. What, are, what happens if you're 50-50 partners and you're deadlocked? That's a very common occurrence, right? Very yeah. common. And so what do you do? Who is going to be responsible for breaking that deadlock? This is something that most businesses don't think about. Now, do you know the consequence of a deadlock is one partner can force you to liquidate the business in court unless you have something else in writing. And that's typically what happens. And it becomes very expensive for the business. Wow. And that, yeah, because it's, you're not just selling everything, are you? There's all the other litigation, all those other fees for selling everything that takes out a big percentage of it. 100%. And who's going to do it? So typically, if somebody files in court to basically say, hey, we're at a deadlock, we can't decide, normally what a judge will do is appoint a receiver. And these receivers charge thousands and thousands of dollars just for their fee for basically liquidating business that you could have done on your own had that provision been in your agreement. Wow. And so what's the, what are some of the crazy types of business divorces you've seen? Because I'm sure you've seen a lot. <laughs> we see so many regularly. And really one of the craziest ones was a two business partners, 50-50 partners. They end up at a deadlock. One of them will not share any of the financial information of the business with the other. Then what the other finds out, our client finds out, is that the original partner has been stealing money from the business, has been, she opened up a credit card using the partner's name and social security number because she had access to all of that. Then once confronted with that, she took off with equipment of the business and started her own business. And all because they entered into an agreement and when they originally did, our client didn't enforce any of her rights. She let the other partner have her way with the business without saying, hey, I need monthly statements. I need weekly statements. I need to know exactly what's going on. I need to have access to the bank accounts just like you do because I'm 50% owner. She didn't, wow. didn't enforce any of that against her partner. And so the partner took full advantage of that. Wow. And did what's, what's the recompense? How does that work? It really becomes very messy, even with the agreement. The issue is at that point, now you're dealing with theft, you're dealing with breaches of fiduciary duties, you're dealing with trade secret theft because the other partner is now stealing customers, like all kinds of things you're dealing with. So we have to unfortunately end up in a full-blown lawsuit just to be able to exercise the rights we need to and stop the other partner from doing what she's doing first stop the bleeding, and then second, try to put, up, put the pieces back together. Wow. And how long does something like that take? Because it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It really doesn't. And most, most, unfortunately, most people go into litigation and say, you know what, I bet a really tough lawsuit will scare the pants off of the other side. Unfortunately, like we talked about, most people are accustomed to lawsuits now, so it doesn't frighten them anymore. Oh, no, I got a lawsuit. That doesn't carry the same weight anymore. 
So they try to drag it out. And unfortunately, the civil litigation system is slow and expensive. Every minute, literally every minute a lawyer spends helping you with a lawsuit will cost you money. And it, it goes long. Most lawyers don't try to cut to the chase. One of the things that's different about our firm is we do recommend early mediation to try to resolve the cases. We do recommend early meetings with opposing counsel if there is opposing counsel to try to get to the bottom of how do we solve this because we're stuck in a bad situation and we don't want to keep running up the bill. Um, but honestly, I had, can I tell you a real quick story? Oh, I, you can tell me a long story. That's what we're here <laughs> for. <laughs> so I had a client come to me about 11 months into litigation. And this was a, also a business lawsuit, but not a business divorce. Uh, but this type of thing happens all the time. And it sticks out in my mind. Uh, this client comes to me. They're from overseas. They're overseas investors in a business. And they come to me and they say, we've been in litigation for 11 months and our lawyer hasn't done anything. Honestly, usually I'm skeptical about that. I look at the docket and I'm like, okay, you're not wrong. <laughs> nothing <laughs> has happened in 11 months. Nothing of substance. A little bit here and there, but nothing of substance. So I'm like, okay, so what's, why don't you just tell your attorney that you want to move faster? And he's, we have, but the attorney right now, to date, 11 months, has charged us $95,000. Oh my gosh. What? $95,000 on this? He's done nothing so far. I don't understand. And they're like, yeah. So then they're like, we want you to take the case on. I'm like, look, the problem is you've already paid $95,000. I'm going to feel bad for charging you anything. How are you going to pay me more mo good money after bad? Yeah. So I told them, honestly, my best recommendation is if the only way I'm going to take this case on is if you agree that, that you need to settle this case quickly because you've already, you're already upside down. There's no chance you recover $95,000, no matter your best case day in court. So my recommendation is that give us six months. Within that six months, we will try to settle this case for you. We will position it and settle the case for you as best as possible. They said, yes. So we took over the case and in four months, we had it settled for a third of what the other attorney was saying. But clients were very happy because they, the bleeding stopped. We mm -hmm. charged them nothing close to $95,000. But that's, it's just, those kind of stories really scare me because People go in completely eyes closed, even with attorneys and attorneys also, it's a business deal. When you go with an attorney, no matter who it is, make sure you get everything in writing. Ask an attorney for a budget up front. I happily give budgets up front. So these are things that you should do to protect yourself like any other business transaction. That's, that's great advice. And you know, it's funny because I think I've been doing this for so long and shot so many videos about business sports. And you're the first person to give that advice, to ask that. <laughs> I, I actually offer it to clients who are a little bit afraid. Look, I don't know what this is going to cost. I said, I totally understand. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes, but you're stuck in a bad situation. You need to hire an attorney. The only thing you can do at this point is protect yourself. So the way to protect yourself is not to go with the cheapest attorney. The way to protect yourself is to go in knowing what you've got ahead of yourself. So get a budget from an attorney, get them to commit to the budget, make sure your bills are reading okay. All of these things you can do. It, it, yeah, it, it makes sense. It's just, I think so many people are scared to go in and talk to an attorney. How often do you see where people got outrageous legal bills and like, I think they got way overcharged? It's obscene. Honestly, it really is obscene. Unfortunately, I hate to say it about fellow lawyers, but 
there are two things going on out there. One is attorneys are charging for work that just isn't there. And we see it really almost all the time where clients will come to us and say they're not happy with their existing lawyer. They want to switch lawyers. And when I ask them what they've been billed so far compared to what's on the docket, what's been done, night and day. The second thing is attorney's fees are going up. Hourly rates have skyrocketed in the last several years. When I first started, $150, $200 was a good hourly rate to charge clients. Now I charge clients between $350 and $400, and that's considered low. Yeah. For a 20-year attorney, I have friends who are charging $600 an hour. And I can't come to, I just, <laughs> that seems wrong to me. I just, I always think about my dad. He has a small business. My dad went to an attorney and they told him $600 an hour. He would balk at that. He would be like, what are you talking about? $600 an hour. But that's a regular going rate right now for a 20-year attorney. Man, it's scary. But like, I, I think then it comes back to what you said before. If you want to prevent those legal bills, you can't go cheap. If you go cheap, no, you're going to... You're going to end up spending much more in the long run. And same thing. I, like, I say that with marketing too. It's if you go cheap with marketing, you're throwing money out the window. And even then, even with a great attorney, it's not guaranteed you're going to win, but you have increased your chance. Uh, I 100% agree. I think there, there are a couple of things that I always recommend. And honestly, I've given this advice during consults with clients who are trying to hire me. I say, look, if you don't hire me, totally okay, but just make sure you're looking at these things. Uh, years of experience in terms of this specific uh, area of work. There are lots of attorneys who are generalists who do a little bit of everything. I would say pin them down in terms of how many cases that they have like this that you're facing or similar cases that are analogous to this. That's number one. The second is willingness to talk to you about budgets, willingness to talk to you about transparency of billing. Those types of things are important. Other than that, I agree with you. I don't think you should go cheap. I think you should go with the best for you. You know, what yeah. the attorney that really gives you the sort of the best answer and best chance to win. Exactly. Exactly. Business divorce. We've talked a little bit about that, but you've done a lot of different things over the years. You do defense, personal injury defense. You, we had a story about soda truck. <laughs> I was just yeah. looking at this. I'm like, I know exactly it's what sad. Story yeah. Um, so, so uh, the way it started was I did litigation at my old firm for very large companies, Fortune 100 companies. And one of them was a, and I won't name names, but one of them was a soda, very large soda manufacturer. There are only two, so you can guess. <laughs> it's 50-50 chance which one it is. And so we used to do a lot of litigation for them and throughout the state of Florida. And one day, I'm, I'm, I live west near Alligator Alley, not too far from there. On my way to the office, I get a call from my senior partner at the time saying, hey, I'm in jury duty. I just got a call from the general counsel of this company. There's a massive accident. I can't get out of here. You need to go. I said, okay, no problem. I turn my car around, get to Alligator Alley. He says, you can't miss it, apparently. This is what he tells me based on the information he gets to. I drive to Alligator Alley and probably... Midway through Alligator Alley, it starts slowing down significantly. So now I'm in the right shoulder lane with my business cards out, ready to tell the FHP I'm counsel for the soda company that's apparently involved in this accident. So you got to let me through. And I keep going slowly. And now I start seeing debris, soda can debris about a mile before the accident. I can't still see the accident, but I see soda can debris on the road and the road is completely closed. I'm the only car moving on the shoulder lane. 
I keep going very slowly. Again, I'm expecting any time to be pulled over by FHP. About a quarter of a mile before the accident scene, now I can see the accident scene. I stop. FHP immediately starts walking toward me. And I give them my business card and I say, I represent the company. I was just called by the general counsel. I need to do an investigation of the accident given the size of this thing. He said, no problem. Takes my card, escorts me through. It was easier than I thought, to be honest with you. Then as I'm walking closer, I see the back of the soda truck, the, the entire cab, the entire truck itself, all of the soda has spilled out. And then as I start moving forward, the actual cab where the driver sits completely burned. Oh my gosh. Completely burned, incinerated. There's not anything recognizable left of that. So clearly the driver is the first concern I have. So I asked the FHP, what's the condition of the driver? He says, we're pulling him in out now. They immediately pull out a charred body in front of me. It was the oh most God. thing I've ever seen. Charred body pulled out in front of me, put in a body bag right there and then. And then... As I move closer, I see that the front of the soda truck has crashed into the back of a lumber truck. This was a truck on the bed of the truck. It was just giant, basically hollowed out trees. It was nothing else. It was just, it was just trees cleared out of any vegetation. Lumber. So I'm trying to figure out how an accident like this would happen. Because the speed at which the trucks would have had to be going, the difference in speed would have to be an astronomical. So uh, a little bit about what your listeners may not know is accident attorneys become really good at physics, become really good at accident reconstruction. You have to know some of these things, right? I went to law school. I didn't like science. And then when you start doing high-end accident work for large companies like this, you have to start learning physics. (laughs) So what's the, what, how does an accident like this get caused? And normally an accident like that would get caused If absent mechanical defect is if the soda truck was going so fast and the lumber truck was going so slow that he just simply rammed into the lumber truck at a massively high speed, that would be one way of doing it. And that would be probably the most obvious way. So I'm taking pictures. I'm trying to take as much of it in. And I hear the lumber truck driver about to start giving a sworn statement to FHP. I immediately run that way. I stand good distance away, but I introduce myself to the FHP investigator. I say, I just need to listen in. He says, no problem. He puts the driver under oath. The driver says, I was driving at a normal speed and the the soda truck driver came out of nowhere and struck me in the back. He must have been going 85, 90. I don't know what was going on. And I was driving 50 to 55, he says. I said, okay, that's one way to do it. That would be one way to do it. Immediately, I call general counsel at the soda company. And this is, this is not a big, small deal. This is international general counsel at a massive soda company. And I'm like, look, I'm at the scene. And I want to know, is there a governor on this truck? And he says, absolutely. All of our trucks have a governor. What is a governor? A governor's governor governs the speed at which the truck can travel. Maximum speed on this truck was set at 60 miles per hour. So what does that mean? The lumber truck was lying. Because he couldn't have been driving at 55 and our truck going 60 with this kind of incident. So what actually happened, we found out several weeks later, after we downloaded the black box from both trucks, is that the lumber truck was actually asleep on the side of the road. And instead of 
indicating properly, speeding up in the shoulder, and then coming into the lane. He just came into the lane while he was driving 20 miles an hour. He didn't realize that the soda truck was traveling at a normal speed behind him. So he comes in at 20 miles an hour into the lane. The soda truck rams right into him. And so it turns out it wasn't the soda truck's responsibility after all. It was the lumber truck who, who had the wrong approach. The lumber truck driver was actually charged eventually with negligent homicide because, and also perjury because he lied to the FHP investigator under oath. Wow. That's crazy. Sorry, that was a longer story. No, that was, that's interesting. It's, it's a very interesting story. And so uh, tell me about a little more, did you all go to trial or did? So we, we were ramping up for it, right? The idea is, okay, let's do our full investigation and then file suit. And this was one of the few cases where we ended up filing suit. We were usually defended, but we filed suit against the lumber truck and the driver because we confirmed through everything that it was the lumber truck's responsibility. Just the cleanup alone on that accident was $50,000. Oh my God. The road cleanup alone, because of how much it had charred the road, how much the soda cans were out there, completely just decimated. That's crazy. Yeah, you don't think of that. Like how much uh, like cleanup costs for some of these accidents. But I mean, I go on Turnpike all the time. You're like, that's going to take forever to clean up. How does that work? So who's responsible for in those types of things for cleaning up of those roads? Who gets the bill? FHP contracts out. And then once FHP gets the bill, they send that to us, whoever the responsible party is. And when they sent it to us, we were initially the responsible party, according to everything that lined up. Wow. And when you tell me about discovering that the guy was asleep at the wheel and and going 20 miles an hour, how did that happen? Like where, because that had to been like an aha moment. We've got this guy. It was amazing. So we, the way it works is all of these trucks, these, especially now, in fact, most cars have, have some sort of black box, but all of these trucks have had black boxes, just like airplanes for a very long time. The way, what they track though, is a little bit different. What they track is the last 30 seconds to a minute of movement or occurrence or events in the truck itself. And the other caveat to this is as long as it hasn't been restarted and moved by driving it. So if you restart it and drive it, you've erased the prior data. Uh-huh. It doesn't save data for a long term. So both of these trucks were towed to a FHP yard. And then we hired an expert there are engineering experts who go and download the data. And then they tell you exactly, like within minutes, they have software that tells you exactly what was going on in these two cars. And so they told us exactly what the soda truck was doing. He was driving 57 miles an hour, perfect speed. And they told us exactly what the lumber truck was doing. He was at zero speed for several minutes. And then his peak speed just before the accident was 19 and that tells us that he was asleep because you're not going to be zero on the, on, in the middle of the road, generally. These truck drivers, they get sleepy. They go on the side of the road. They sleep. Normally, what they're supposed to do, all of us, if we're in the shoulder, you're supposed to drive straight, catch speed according to your traffic, and then come into the lane. You're not supposed to just veer into the lane. I know a lot of Miami drivers miss that. (laughs) But you're not supposed to veer into the lane because the car coming behind you doesn't know that you're coming into the lane until it's too late. So you're supposed to drive in the shoulder for some time until you catch equal speed with the traffic and then merge in. 
That's crazy. It, yeah, that makes sense. And how many times I've seen people just go boom right in. Yeah. And yeah, it's really scary. And obviously, this is why. I, it's just, and I can only imagine if that was a small car. Because I see small cars do that all the time, too. Exactly right. And what led you from doing that type of defense, which is interesting, into what you do now with the yeah, business divorce so, and litigation? So really what happened is I've always been interested in building up my own clientele, right? Obviously, every attorney should be. As I was working for that other firm, I was actually a partner there. And I really liked the guys I was working with, but I started building my own business and my own sort of clientele. And a lot of that, they were small businesses. I was doing business transactions for them. I was doing small litigation for them, things like that, business divorces for them. But what happened is that work and, for example, the soda truck work, for example, or we represented a lot of very significant clients at the time. And I did most of that litigation and they were, it was conflicting in terms of schedules, in terms of these things. So I was having to choose which one can I go to. And then at some point, I just decided, you know what? I don't want to have, keep having this discussion with my clients. Hey, I'm busy doing a deposition or a trial for this major company because my clients don't care. They're just as important as the major company. Yep. Uh, they don't care that I'm doing this other work. They want service now. So I decided it was better for myself to, to go out on my own and serve those business owners. Nice. And so you work with clients all around South Florida, all around Florida as well? We represent businesses, honestly, all throughout the world. So really what we do is I'm licensed in Florida and California, but a lot of what I do is on the transactional side, on the helping businesses side before they get into trouble is set up investments for them, set up companies for them. And so a lot of people come from overseas that want to invest in Florida. Florida is a hotspot right now, right? Obviously for several years. So if they want to invest, how does it go? How does a foreigner go about investing in Florida, either in real estate or business, whether for immigration purposes or not? I don't do immigration, but I help them set up the business side of it. Nice. Awesome. And I'm sure that's a booming business down there. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It is. That's fantastic. So we'll put links to your website on the show notes in the show notes, ilp.law. We'll put a link to your phone number and your email address. What do you spend a lot of time on social media? Is there someplace else people can follow you? Yeah. Instagram is usually where I'm at and Facebook a little bit, but mostly Instagram. Awesome. We'll put a link to your Instagram in the show notes as well. Yasser Baloo, thank you so much for being on True Law Stories. My pleasure. Thanks really for really very much for having me. I love the discussion. It was a great discussion. We'll have to have you back. And thank you all for taking Yester and I on your journey. It's been I and Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need Video Case Stories for your business. Go to VideoCaseStory.com to learn more.